0: Hey, thinkers, welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Podcast. I'm really excited to have Professor Dominic D'Agostino with us this week. And for keto biohackers out there, this is a name that you've heard before. He's probably one of the most prolific modern researchers in the field of ketones, ketogenic diets. Um, so, let's it, it, you know, I, I think this is a, a great opportunity to really just dive into what's at the cutting edge here a little bit about his CV. Uh, He's a professor at uh, the University of South Florida uh, in the Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology Department. Um, And and as I said before, really at the the bleeding edge of looking at ketones, not just for therapy, but also for potential human enhancement. So happy to have you on with us, Dom.
1: Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, cheers. Um, Before we dive, too deep into the biology here. um, I'd love to get a sense of, you know, how you got into the space of ketones Uh, for us, uh, for me personally, um, you know, especially in Silicon Valley with biohackers, a lot of people are looking to optimize for cognitive performance. Um, When people hear about ketogenic diets or ketones, uh, I think most people think about weight loss. Um, And I think obviously there's some interest it, interesting indications for key keto in, in that aspect um but i think in 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 this day and age there's a lot of people looking for enhancement so we got into intermittent fasting a big driver for intermittent fasting is uh, accelerating neurogenesis uh some of the downstream effects of autophagy all those things um and one of the key drivers of some of these benefits was elevated uh levels of ketone so that's how we got you know, our community is, is interested in ketosis. Curious to, to hear your personal journey, how, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you dove into the world of ketones, exogenous ketones, ketogenic diets.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I studied uh, neuroscience as a PhD, and uh, I was o- very interested in how the brain responds to low levels of oxygen. So the general response to hypoxia is a decrease in brain energy metabolism and output, uh, ex, you know, excluding a few uh, cardiorespiratory regions that that are associated with the neural control of autonomic regulation, like the ventral lateral medulla, the pre-Botzinger region. These regions are actually hypoxia sensitive and they uh, they actually are excited under periods of low oxygen and, even uh, in the absence of, like, substrate flow. So I I became really interested in the metabolism of neurons and and, uh, in regards to substrate and level of oxygen. So a lot of my interest in far as metabolites really was with lactate. So for years, I kind of, you know, was looking at lactate as a molecule that could be kind of... uh, in supplement form uh alpha l polylactate was something i used when i was mountain biking and was really involved in that sport it's in uh it's in the product cytomax and i was kind of personally sort of selfishly interested in from that perspective that i could study sort of a supplement that i was using and this is going back you know 20 25 years ago when i was uh, in uh doing my phd and
0: uh and typically lactate is an anaerobic uh Substrate, right? So, like, basically, glucose converts yeah. into, yep. a, uh, or, or lactate is like is a is a byproduct of anaerobic, uh, you know, fermentation to generate ATP. So it's interesting that I mean, it makes sense, right? You don't need yeah, oxygen to produce right. la- or to, to utilize lactate.
1: Yeah, and it becomes pretty important under periods of hypoxia, uh, especially in regards to brain energy, uh, you know, function and and maintenance of. Uh, like resting membrane potential in the face of hypoxia. And that that was like my what I studied during my PhD. And and then the neural control of autonomic regulation, like how, uh, for example, the rostral ventral lateral medulla, the pre region of the brainstem, kind of those neurons fire in response to low oxygen and they augment cardiorespiratory control. And sort of, you know, all the metabolism kind of associated with that and ketones were on my radar but not really something and i think it had to do with the stigma that ketones had back in the mid 90s and late 90s and you still, know, today, still today still yeah, today they do yeah i mean i, 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 I think that's sure yeah yeah uh
0: they think that it's bad because people with diabetes get what's called ketoacidosis which is yeah good.
1: That's, so, diabetic ketoacidosis that's is, you know, something that I'll teach on. And there's also something called uh, alcoholic ketoacidosis, which can occur under certain conditions. Uh, and that's, that's much different than, obviously, than nutritional ketosis. Um, so, and we, we can get, you know, delve in, in, into that. So, I, I started studying, you know, it, it, as a neuroscientist, the effect of low oxygen on the brain, and then I did my postdoctoral fellowship uh, studying what happens uh, under conditions of high oxygen in the brain—a high partial pressure of oxygen. So, which would mean not just breathing 100% oxygen, right? So, we're breathing 0.1 or 0.2 ATA of oxygen, or abs- uh, uh, oxygen like a- absolute—it's uh, called atmospheres absolute oxygen, but if you're breathing 100% oxygen, you would be breathing like one atmosphere of oxygen, absolute, but if you go to a hyperbaric environment and go under sea, for example, so every 10 meters is is an atmosphere, right? So if you go down to uh, 50 meters, you're at like five atmospheres, or it's like 132 feet of seawater. So at that level, if you're breathing pure oxygen at that level, that will send your brain into a seizure, a grand mal seizure within about like 10 minutes or so. So my postdoctoral fellowship was really uh, focused on designing technologies to understand that phenomenon. It's known as CNS oxygen toxicity. And to do that, uh, we utilize various techniques in the lab that I was trained on, patch clamp electrophysiology, uh, electrophysiological recordings of different types, uh, different forms of microscopy like laser scanning confocal and atomic right. force microscopy and during like the uh, primary use case here was
0: I, I know is like is like special forces sealed deep sea diving right like that's like basically in, in, in practical terms yeah. where humans can face these conditions
1: yeah so you know where do where do humans you know experience these conditions and it's pretty right. it, it's maybe like an esoteric field of study but uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, is FDA approved for like 14, 15 different applications and a uh, very common, uh, procedure for wound healing and, you know, other applications like carbon monoxide poisoning and, and um, a, a number of, even, uh, for cancer, for radiation necrosis, uh, it's, it's used. Right. So if we know the limitation is about 2.5 to 3 atmospheres, because of oxygen toxicity. So if we could uh, mitigate that, we could potentially, you know, uh, hyper oxygenate someone, for example, uh, someone with carbon monoxide poisoning, and it could be, you know, more pressure to get the the carbon monoxide off the hemoglobin molecule to oxygenate them. So you could potentially save their life, you can make the therapy easier. So that's another realm. But yeah, for what I was studying, and you know, really was funded to do, uh, for this scenario of, uh, using a closed circuit rebreather, like, uh, the type of rebreather is called a drager and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a small unit that more or less sits on your chest, uh, with special operations community. Uh, they use this type of rebreather and it's usually used for shallow uh, operations, but if for, you know, under certain situations, you have to go deeper (laughs) to, to plant a, a mine, to evade, uh, you know, the enemy overhead that's shooting at you or to uh, if the right. visibility is high and, and people are overhead in aircraft, they can see you. So you got to go down deep. And if you do that, then you have the risk of getting an oxygen toxicity seizure. Uh, or if you're down there for too long, uh, which is kind of the case. And now with recreational diving... There's a big push; a lot of tech divers are jumping into the rebreathers. So there's kind of people are getting more hit with oxygen toxicity. So the technologies that we developed allow us to look at, like the plasma membrane and even the mitochondria, under conditions that simulate this. And we used reduced preparations, like uh, like dissociated uh, cell culture systems of the hippocampus, of the cortex, uh, hippocampal brain slice preparation, where you. You literally like cut the brain like a piece of bread and you stick it under hmm. the microscope that's inside the chamber and you can do electrical recordings and fluorescent imaging of uh, reactive oxygen species. So I developed a technique to measure superoxide anion under graded levels of oxygen and pressure. And that gave us insights to understanding that these reactive oxygen species are being produced under these extreme environments. So I, I started focusing on antioxidant. Uh, as a mitigation strategy or a countermeasure. Right. And it became apparent that the, the oxygen-free radicals were more or less a byproduct of oxidative metabolism in the brain and, and the right. mitochondria. So, so kind of working my way through this, I kind of delved into, well, what if we enhance mitochondrial uh, energetic capacity or what if we start you know putting in different types of substrates Uh, And I was keen on actually increasing the pentose phosphate pathway to make more glutathione and things. But uh, I stumbled upon, you know, some of the early research on ketones and their potential enhancement for enhancing bioenergetics of cells in the working perfused heart preparation. And I bought some. uh, This is a Sato paper in in the
0: late 80s, right? Yeah.
1: Yep. And and. Some of the work actually by uh, henry brooding or too from case western he did some things with, with ketone esters and uh right. yeah I, I was basically you know absorbing all this information <laughs> and being that oxygen toxicity is a is a, essentially a grand mal or what we call tonic chronic seizure i got turned on to the ketogenic diet too and right. and some papers that talked about the mechanisms of ketones in particular. And the first person that I actually really connected with as far as you know, spending time on the phone and lots of emails would be Jung Rho. And at the time he was at Barrow Neurological Institute. And uh, he's really uh, probably has one of the most in depth you know, understandings of ketones and redox control and, uh, and sort of was kind of skilled in the types of experiments I did like patch clamping and, and electrophysiology. Yeah. So I connected with him first and, um, and he, he told me he thought that, you know, the ketogenic diet could ameliorate, I think was where CNS oxygen toxicity. And this was back just right. about 10 years ago. So I started putting, you know, a lot of my time and effort into writing grant proposals to study this. And when we bought some ketone salts, like from Sigma, uh, Uh, Sodium beta hydroxybutyrate and mixed it up, you know, in solution. Started running experiments, and uh, it was obvious that it was attenuating the uh, the oxygen free radicals, the superoxide anion, which I was measuring, and also oxidative damage, which which would be membrane lipid peroxidation, you know, that we could uh, measure. So, yeah, no, I think that's interesting because
0: it seems like if you just follow nutritional trends. Probably like in the last ten years plus ago, antioxidants were all the rage, and I think yeah. as you're referencing, um, you're essentially solving or resolving a symptom of potentially what could be. You know, can you just make the mitochondria more efficient so you're not producing as much reactive oxygen species? Yeah. Right? So going one step below the antioxidant, um, I think when I just reference the Sato paper, and I think what, what I think what you Keen you on this probably when you're first emerging, your research was 20% more uh, power per unit oxygen while running on ketones versus running on glucose, which I think is, you know, some of these like interesting, like baseline biological phenomenon that yeah. derives all these downstream effects. I think, I, I think that, yeah. So I think I, I, I can see, you know, the, the, the intellectual maze as you were uh, carving out this path here.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, really saw it as a an alternative fuel that had the potential to shift, you know, not not just metabolism, but just the redox environment that the metabolism was sort of functioning in, you know, because that was right. really I, I was really focused on uh, redox-regulated ion channels and proteins and enzymes and things like that, and it was from from. From my perspective, I was measuring oxygen free radicals in response to graded levels of oxygen pressure, and that was the variable I was looking at. And all I saw was that you know the the oxidative stress was going down, and, right. and it's still you know uh, not not completely clear how the ketones are uh, having you know an antioxidant effect, uh, but it, it's probably doing it through a number of different mechanisms, sort of working in synergy. Uh, that's actually a, kind of a focus of our lab. It's kind of understanding uh, how they function as a histone deacetylase inhibitor, how they um, how right. they function in signaling with um, suppressing uh, inflammatory pathways, uh, even even which, in the brain. Yeah,
0: which a lot of people do fasting to to. Yeah. So fasting is one way they trigger some of these mechanisms. I think uh, that's yep. yeah it, that that's what got me personally into looking at ketones because if you look at intermittent fasting. Uh, yeah, it, uh, those things get triggered on those pathways for caloric restriction and all of that. So it it yeah, it's interesting. Like what what drives uh what I think is is, is yeah. very much an active area of research. Yeah,
1: that's that's a good question. Actually, uh, uh, Walter Longo was a keynote speaker in the conference that we host here at USF, right. And gave a really good in depth definition. A USC you know, of a longevity. Yeah, researcher. yeah, and Rhonda Patrick. Yeah. She's she's an excellent uh, resource on that, and kind of delved into that. So there, there's, you know, with fasting, you do, it does kick on a genetic program that, you know, triggers autophagy and, and this program's largely silenced with, with the way we eat now. So, uh, right. you know, doing periodic intermittent fasting or just occasionally going into ketosis or, you know, nothing, nothing really extreme, but doing it occasionally, uh, is, is beneficial in, in many ways. Um, it's interesting, though, that most of the people that actually follow me, I think, or that are on this topic, as you are and your listeners are, many of them don't necessarily kind of need the ketogenic diet. It may not even be optimal, but uh, many of the people that you know stand to benefit are kind of people who don't work out and don't right. really know right. of the benefits of this. Uh, in particular, what I've seen, especially from blood work, uh, you know, I have, like, some younger guys that kind of get their parents to go on this, and they, they're they not up on the science, but they convince them that it's worth doing it. And they, uh, you know, they'll send me, like, kind of blood work before and after. This is, like, usually the over 50 crowd that have overt signs of metabolic disease, and the blood work is, like, strikingly different. What The thing that really stands out is this, you know, the... The CRP levels, the inflammation goes down and the triglycerides go down tremendously, um, which is interesting because they're typically eating more fat, right? And then uh, that's a good sign. It's not a good sign if someone's on a ketogenic diet and their triglycerides go up. I mean, that's an indication yeah, it's, that yeah. their beta oxidation of fats is not optimal for some reason or another. Um, so ketones, actually, therapeutically, that, I, I, ketones may actually I, help uh, that right i i I think there's
0: a lot of um i think i I would say confusion over uh fat adaptations and is there a differentiation between keto adapted right because i I think in my mind a lot of people conflate them in the the same way but the way i think about energy substrates for mitochondria you have you know the the mitochondria can either use carbohydrate glucose you can use you can uh, oxidize free fatty acids or it can oxidize or it could metabolize ketones, right? So, you know, my, in in my discussions, in my thinking, one can be uh, in this new universe where you can have exogenous ketones, essentially get ketones without having to elevate fat. um, then, Then there's like a world where there is some difference between being ketone or keto adapted versus uh, fat adapted what is your thinking there
1: well you'd have to sort of define what that means <laughs> i think uh, Right. So I, I think i think i
0: think yeah because i think that like i don't think there's a very clear definition i think when people call uh well i guess colloquially when people talk about being fat adapted um uh their metabolism metabolism shifts more towards burning fat than and burning carbs yeah
1: um, and I, I I view it from the perspective as a neuroscientist because that 's maybe i 'm a little bit biased, but that 's my background, but I think right. when we 're talking about being keto adapted, I think it really has to do with transitioning your brain from you know using glucose, and there becomes a period of what I call glucose withdrawal that the brain goes through and and, and there's a number of processes that I think, happen that contribute to being keto-adapted, and I, and I think it's an upregulation of beta oxidation in the liver, of the enzymes involved in hepatic uh, ketogenesis, and also uh, the transport of ketones uh, across uh, the blood-brain barrier and also into cells through an upregulation of uh, the monocarboxylic acid transporters. So the protein for that transporter will go up even to, you know, after about two days of uh, with intermittent fasting and, and with following the ketogenic diet. Uh, and, right. and interestingly, like if you subject rats or rodents to things like intermittent hypoxia, you can also see an upregulation of that transporter, maybe for lactate, because they, they use the same transporter. Uh, and right. then you have the ketolytic enzymes that are in the cells itself, uh, and they will increase over time. So the these are uh, maybe there's five or six things that I mentioned there, but there's probably <laughs> t- 10 or, t- or 20 things. And, and that's kind of what our lab is interested in measuring some of these variables and how they change. Right. And uh, if someone, you know, we have many different uh, fat oxidation enzymes in our muscles and in our liver. And some people have wide variety of activity of those enzymes. And I think there's like, you know, one of the major enzymes, hmg coa or something, there's like 30 different known mutations that like humans can have. And it could, it could be like on a spectrum. It's not like on or off, but, it, and I think that may be, they may account for some of the variability that we see in people that are following ketogenic diets. And for example, not producing robust levels of ketones or just not feeling, feeling unwell when they follow the ketogenic right. diet. So I think these things need to be considered. And I think some of the technologies that are emerging now, you take your 23andMe data and you put that into a variety, and then a dozen or different online programs now that will tell you based on, you know, a various genetic uh, profiles. These nutrigenomic um, field is, is growing. It's a little early to really put but your yeah, faith in my, it now. That's, but. My, that's
0: my thinking too. Yeah, it's it's like the, the data that we do have is like, okay, you're a fast metabolizer of caffeine or your body produces more mm-hmm. vitamin D endogenously or something. It's pretty basic stuff right now. I think people yeah. are making too broad claims that are, are, are stretching it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think where I was, you know, opening a, a, a conversation was that I think normally in biology to get elevated ketones, you need to essentially uh, be in nutritional ketosis or, 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 or be, they basically have low glycogen reserves, right? There's like never a case where you have high glucose and, uh necessarily high ketones without high fat um unless you're you're, you're, i think unless you have a disease or something um and i think with a lot of the work with exogenous ketones or ketones that you can consume that directly uh enters your bloodstream as ketones and and not going through uh you know not not being converted from fat one could imagine your you could be uh you know, optimize for glucose uptake and then optimize for a ketone uptake and then, uh, not be optimized for fat uptake. Where I think, before, yeah. you know, typically before one would be like sort of glucose optimized and then fat ketone optimized. So I think there's like, this seems like be like a new, uh, biological state that one can now enter with the recent developments in exogenous ketones.
1: Yeah. You know, the best way to adapt your body to burning, uh, fat and carbohydrates or sugar and, and ketones is to subject your body to that that metabolic physiological state, right? So, you know, train right. low carb, uh, but also train <laughs> periods of, of high carb. And then you're, you're, if you don't sustain carbohydrate restriction for a period of time and use it intermittently, minutely as a tool like sugar is a very powerful you know performance enhancing substance and it has its place in uh, a lot of people think i'm (laughs) anti-sugar or anti carbs which i'm not i just think it uh i just feel better being in a state of ketosis but also uh (laughs) understand that you know we can leverage all these different metabolites so the things you know we we're interested in I'm interested in formulating in the lab maybe exogenous ketones with uh, perhaps uh, a form of carbohydrate and, and creatine yeah. and, and, and lactate or alpha polylactate and other things and then various cofactors which make yeah. those things work work better. But I but I think it's really good to maintain metabolic flexibility to adapt your body yeah. to different eating strategies. And intermittent fasting no, yeah, is that, a great way to do that.
0: Yeah, it's super refreshing to hear because I think like in this okay. I think in in this universe people are pretty dogmatic right it's like uh low carb high fat only way to eat or whatever eat a balanced diet and i think that each metabolic substrate whether it's carbohydrate fat protein each are optimal each have its functional purpose like if you don't have glycogen you don't have glucose you can't like it's very hard for you to you know anaerobic sprints anaerobic you know heavy lifting like having enough glycogen you know increases like growth like igf1 right like it's it's kind of like this trade-off and i think people are very much like hey we're on this side of the world and there's not like everything else on the other side of the world is is, is, like bad for you but just biology is i think just a a matter of trade-offs if you want a certain optimized use case you would sort of optimize your your training your diet for that use case but i think it depends on what your end goals are
1: yeah and and to use uh different eating strategies to your benefit and fit, fit it into your program like there will be periods of that you'll just want to add surplus calories if even if you're on like a ketogenic diet or a modified ketogenic diet and you uh on one day you have twenty five percent extra calories like surplus calories, right. even if it's not carbohydrates, that's actually gonna start to top off your glycogen stores in in your muscle. Right. just the extra calories uh w- right. will do that, and periods of uh energy uh, dietary energy restriction or intermittent fasting primes, uh, many of the anabolic signaling pathways. So if you were to, if like kind of what I like to do is just periods where my body is not under stress, like physical, uh, or, you know, even in psychological stress, like I will kind of under eat during that time and periods where I'm putting my body through a lot of work, you know, I will then, uh, add surplus calories in and around that for, for recovery. And I think, uh, and I was just meeting yeah, with... Yeah, what is your
0: personal protocol? I mean, it sounds like you cycle in and out of, you know, ketosis then, or any cycle kind of in and out of intermittent or fasting periods.
1: Yeah, it, it'll vary. The, and it can, that's the theme, too. It'll vary depending upon uh, what I'm doing, if I'm traveling nonstop, you know, or, or I do have time uh, to train, it, it may vary. But generally, I um, believe, you know, kind of eat, eat towards your activity level, too. Uh, right. So also I'm also testing things like constantly. So uh, a lot of the times if I am doing intermittent fasting or what I call intermittent fasting, I will not eat throughout the period of the day and then have my first meal or f- between 4 and 6 p.m. But during the work hours, I will be testing uh, a new ketone uh you know salt formula or a ketone ester formula or something but okay. so i like to be able to test things when my body is kind of at baseline levels and sitting right. at my desk whereas if i'm running around doing stuff actually doing physical activity my metabolites or glucose and it's going to be all over the place so i like like right. today for example i'm actually testing like the d enantiomer of different salts and different formulations of those uh the, the d the d right. salts and with different types of uh ketogenic fats so uh, actually after this, I'm going to run and I'm getting a whole lipid, NMR lipid profile and, and blood work because uh-huh. uh, I'm actually testing the salts at really high levels <laughs> to see if it influences like not only electrolytes, but different, uh, uh, how my lipid profile in general. So, so- it's a true
0: biohacker, you're cut from, from a clock, you're, you're, yeah. you're running your <laughs> own experiments on your own body. No, that's awesome. Um, So it sounds like, okay. So yeah. So basically it sounds like when you're, you're, when you're doing sort of these N equals one self experiments, you're essentially doing one meal type day things. And then you're sort of, I guess you're just testing different regimes with exogenous ketones.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Like last week, I was eating two meals a day and uh, pretty much every day, like 7 a.m., 7 p.m. And the week before that, I had a ton of teaching where I had to wake up early, sort of. So I did intermittent fasting kind of works better because I don't like the stomach food too early in the morning if I have to wake up. And then this week, uh, I really wanted to focus on testing different types of formulas from, you know, batches of, of. uh different ketones that we have. And, uh, I'm really interested now, you know, we tested a lot of things in isolation, but I think where a lot of the potential may lie, especially in, you know, for your audience, there is the formulation of, of these things. Uh, I I think some of them, some things kind of synergize together and we see that we, we see that certain ketone, uh, ketone esters or salts or salt formulas work really well. For example, to attenuate uh, anxiety behavior in in right. different animal model systems that we're studying.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about th- those two big topics. Actually, I think one of the most interesting results was a recent paper you published around anti anxiety effects, anxiolytic effects of uh, you know of, of exogenous ketones. I think a specific ketone ester. I think that's one area that like we should we should dive into. And I think the second broad area that we've touched upon a little bit is what is the universe of exogenous ketones? And we can talk about the different ketone salts, different ketone esters and, and, and all of that. But yeah, I, 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 you know, I think a lot of us are curious around um, the pathways for anti-anxiety. An I think in this day and age, I think more people are overly anxious than wanting more stimulants. I think the world has a lot of uppers i think we in in this day and age we need better downers in in some way um and it's interesting to see some of the results coming out of exogenous ketones is that it's potentially you know very efficacious for lowering anxiety
1: yeah yeah you know we kind of study things uh the reverse of uh you know, maybe what I'm supposed to be doing as far as, you know, like, and I, if I'm funded by the National Institutes of Health, usually it's uh, the the research needs to be very mechanistic and you identify right. a potential signaling pathway and then work up, you know, towards, yep. you know, animal and then human studies from that pathway. Uh, and that's, uh, and that type of research, uh, which is, has kind of been disappointing, <laughs> you know, starting from a very, like, reduced preparation. So I like to say, like, in our lab, we do a lot of top-down uh, research, and I think it, it'll be right. more fruitful when we can literally, like, experience and tinker around with things ourselves and figure out what works from a human performance optimization point of view when, right. like, uh, you are not know, pointing to this kinase or that ion channel or whatever, which I spent a long time doing, you know, with electrophysiological studies. Uh, so with anxiety studies, uh, we observed when we were doing our, uh our seizure uh, experiments where we basically uh, we have these animal studies where we put the rat that has biosensors inside of it, where we measure uh, brain EEG, diaphragmatic EMG, uh, heart rate, temperature, everything. And the sensors inside the rat and the the rat is inside a plexiglass chamber that's 100% oxygen. And then that's in a bigger hyperbaric oxygen chamber. And we will pressurize that And keep it at to simulate like a Navy SEAL dive until they have a seizure, and we have a a video camera recording in addition to the EEG. And as soon as they have a seizure, we quickly like flush with air, and then we stop the seizure, kind of like a a, a diver would do, would would surface and come up. So it's not even actually harmful, and it's and it's reproducible. Well, when we when we did that with uh, a particular ketone ester, we could extend the latency to seizure. Uh, up to about 600%, which was above and beyond any anticonvulsant drug, the best being Vigabatrin, which is like a glutamic acid decarboxylase uh, uh, activator, and and it stimulates more glutamate to GABA, and it works through that mechanism. That's an
0: insane result, right? If you can stay under longer for like six times longer, it sounds like, which is like crazy.
1: Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, even the best anticonvulsant drugs, if you look at like, a bunch of mm-hmm. them that have been tested. I, I'm not aware of any that approach that. Or you have to give s- such a high amount, you're basically sedating and, and putting <laughs> the animal or the person into a coma. Into a coma. You know, and They're less likely then, to That yeah. you know yeah. these these initial studies that we did got me so interested uh, in understanding. Kind of the mechanism, but it was like a top-down approach. I tinkered with cells a little bit and saw the potential of ketones, and then we had to test a bunch of different formulas to find, you know, a ketone ester that worked. And but when we were giving, when we did an intragastric gavage of the ketone ester and just fed it orally, essentially, the rats were like really calm, and we thought like maybe they were sedated or maybe you know they were just like a little bit drunk because butane diol is a component of of a ketone ester, whether it be uh, uh, a beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester or an acetoacetate diester. It's still combined with 13 that the forms that we were working with. And there's also glycerol esters that, w- that we were working with. Uh, and we thought it was because of that. But when we did another study on exercise performance and we put them on a rotor rod, they ran farther, faster, and longer. <laughs> so it's not like they were drunk. Uh, so my wife, actually, uh, she works... Um, at a a different facility but she uh, on same institute in in psychology she's a behavioral neuroscientist and she was very interested in the behavior and was like these rats you know are definitely way more calm i can pet them i can you know they're just much easier to handle and she was kind of urging me saying you know we need to study the anxiety behavior in these rats because they're obviously less anxious so to right. do that, there's a variety of methods, and one is the elevated plus maze, which is like pharmaceutical companies will use this when they're testing anti-anxiety you know, uh, drugs or, or different types of pharmaceuticals. Right. So you know, we invested in getting that equipment, and we ran a bunch of studies uh, on rats, on the Sprague Dolly rat and another uh, called a, a waggree rat, it's, it's a, a different type of, of uh, rat species, and we, uh, you know, assessed different types of ketones and ketones formula. Uh, we looked at, like, their glucose or beta-hydroxybutyrate changes in body weight, which we saw uh, some changes in that. But we really, you know, the main emphasis for the anxiety studies was to look at uh, the elevated plus maze data. And essentially what happens is if the rat is anxious, it goes. it's like a little catwalk, <laughs> and it will run into... Uh, A little cave to avoid sort of exploratory behavior and if a rat is less anxious it will come out on the elevated platform and uh,
0: poke around more yeah Yeah, and more time okay
1: yeah and and to you know we can we quantify this so we have cameras set up so we can we can assess how many how much time was spent in the open arm versus the closed arm and number of entries and we can correlate that to the ketone level. So, if the higher the ketones, then they go, you know, they, their exploratory behavior is more and their fear response is attenuated. And so, that's, that's really uh, what we spent a lot of time. It was,
0: was this a, a single shot of a ketone ester and they were just eating a normal, balanced diet beforehand? Or were they sort of like fat adapted or, or supplemented over time?
1: As yeah, rats or good, mice? good question. Uh, well, we haven't done like long-term administration yet. So this was uh, I would call it subchronic. So it was basically giving an oral bolus uh, seven days per week. So seven doses. So we come in okay. at a predetermined time point, and we give the oral dose to each rat. And essentially, within 30 to 60 minutes, we put them in starvation-level ketosis. And then it's elevated. We did the pharmacokinetics for it. It's elevated for about 8 to 12 hours with that dose. So we give it, like, a fairly whopping dose. Um, you know, it, it's definitely under, you know, well under the, like, the LD50 of, of ketoacidosis. But it puts it up there to, like, kind of where you'd be at if you were doing, like, a really strict ketogenic diet. Uh, and it, it's harder to get rodents into ketosis than than humans too. Uh, they just for various reasons. Um, so we did that, and for up yeah, to one week. Yeah, that, that,
0: that brings like a side point. Um, it was interesting. I think Doctor Veach has mentioned in some of his talks that like humans are the only animals that are really good at ketosis. But I don't think that's true, right? Like like cows go into ketosis, like different. I mean, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, so, that's yeah, but... not true.
1: <laughs> I don't. I think he's yeah, I just... maybe he just misspoke or something. Uh, but yeah, I think the other other species can definitely use uh, ketones. Uh, my wife, for example, I mean, she studies fish. She studies uh, manta rays, the giant manta rays, yeah. and we did you know metabolomics on manta ray blood and and brain and showed that interestingly, they they dive really deep, like down to 2,000 feet, and. Uh, yeah and I made her one... She was like... She travels all over. She was in Indonesia at one point and I made her measure uh, when I was getting into this research. I was like, you have to measure the ketone levels in the manta ray. Like, she had 50 million other things to do but the only thing I was... concerned about is what I wanted to know what a deep diving manta rays ketone levels were, uh, because they have, they're chock full of this MCT transporter. And I realized the transporter was being used for lactate because essentially hypoxia down there. But when we measured beta hydroxybutyrate, uh, they, their levels were like 2.5 or 2.7 millimolar, which is really high. I mean, for, for all animal species, like mammals, you know, would never see that high unless they were fasting or something like that. So, uh, right. hmm. and, and manta rays have the, they, they're like the Einsteins of like the water. Their brain is like super large compared to any other fish. They have the biggest fish, the biggest brains of all fish. So, uh,
0: Huh, didn't know that.
1: Yeah, beta hydroxybutyrate production and levels tend to correlate with brain size. So, uh, you know, you know, humans have the one of the largest, you know, brain per body weight ratio um than, you know, other other mammals and compared to a rat and compared to uh, you know, a, a mouse. So they tend right. to proportionally, you know, produce and utilize more ketones just cuz their brains a big energetic sink and I think we have have evolved to developing uh, that our metabolic regulation is such to preserve and sustain brain energy metabolism. So I think our production of ketones is kind of reflects that. that It really needs to prioritize, Um, and I think our brain is a – is a very good utilizer of ketones. And one of the questions that I had, I I was actually really skeptical of uh, (laughs) Dr. Veach's work when I got into this because I was reading, you know, a lot of the ketogenic diet literature and it was talked about keto adaptation. Like your brain Mm -hmm. had to be first... Adapted and living in a state of ketosis before it can even use ketones, but uh, we realized that you know that's not the case. I remember talking to him on the phone. It was like, no, your your brain can you know transport ketones, and uh, and then I got it's into insane. the literature. He was it was right, and then when we did the experiments with acute administration with seizures, I mean it was very obvious because our rats were eating a high carbohydrate uh, rat chow, and we, you know thirty minutes prior. To diving them and to induce a seizure, that we had tremendous neuroprotection above and beyond any right. anti-convulsant drugs. So it was, they're definitely apparent that it's getting into the brain. And then we did brain metabolomics yeah. and everything, and saw that it was elevated in the brain tissue.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a super fascinating area of research. You mentioned just like neuroprotectiveness across beyond just anti-anxiety. I think there's interesting data coming out of uh, ketogenic diets. Being protective for traumatic brain injury, concussion, etc. I think, I mean, it just sounds like, uh, yeah, ketones uh, are good for the brain in a lot of different ways beyond just anti-anxiety. I mean, I think there's just, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's just like a, a bunch of interesting use cases. That was part one of this week's episode of the Thinking Podcast. Stay tuned for part two.